Our scripture this morning comes from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is God's word. Uh, Susan read that perfectly as she normally does, uh, because that should be our response to this vision uh, in this, uh, in this uh, part of the book of Revelation. So good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I didn't introduce, introduce myself before. I am one of the pastors here, <laughs> so... It's good to see you this morning. I told you last week uh, that as we approach the Advent season, what we're going to do this Advent is uh, we're going to go into the book of Revelation. We've been going through the whole Bible. It felt wrong to not finish it out. Uh, and I know, I know that may cause you confusion because it doesn't feel like Revelation screams Christmas. And um, I'm going to try to make the case that it does. And in fact, I'm so excited uh, about about doing that, that I figured, why not go ahead and do a week early, get in there a week early before Advent starts. Uh, now, I will tell you, all the other uh, pastors that preach the same uh, things normally that we do in our network, they've all bailed on this, and so, uh, so I want to publicly shame them and call them chickens. 
And if you see them, happen to be around any of them, you should call them that as well and make fun of them. Uh, because this is a very intimidating book. It's a really intimidating book. It's full of people with seven eyes and seven horns and what does all that stuff mean. And, and we're really, one of the big things at the very beginning, we're not going to get bogged down in the details because the book was not written that way. It's meant to, to give us big picture ideas. And so I'm, I'm excited to be able to, to come to this text this morning. Now the reason for going ahead and starting a week early is um, it's been a pretty crazy couple weeks in our, in our country, hasn't it? I mean, there's a lot of emotion. I mean, things, are, things seem upside down. Uh, you can't even go to a Broadway show anymore without uh, the people at the Broadway show airing their political views uh, because people feel really deeply about what's going on. And, you know, I, I, I'm late to the party, or maybe I did it wrong, or maybe I, maybe I didn't. But, uh, you know, leading up to the, to the election a couple of weeks ago, I was traveling and so I, this is one of my guilty pleasures. I kind of thumb through the websites of some of the churches in our city, and, and all of them, of course, in the, in the weeks leading up to the election, seem to, the pastors seem to be, you know, trying to get their people ready, uh, you know, kind of, I'm trying to be careful here, but, but just, just kind of laying out the issues for people and trying to help people uh, think well, I think, about, about what they were to do. And I, and I want to tell you, um, I really think, that that approach uh, is wrong-headed. And here's why. Uh, because I think anytime Christians look forward and try to legitimate positions or predict outcomes of things, we get into a lot of trouble. Rather, I think, I, and I'm not really sure how to say what I'm trying to say this morning, and it's not a part of my notes, which is always scary, so I just, just kind of came on me. Rather, um, I, think, I think our job more, I think it's better to wait for things to happen in, in, the cult, in the culture and then come behind those happenings with comfort and explanation. Because I really think it's the way the Bible postures itself. And, and the irony is, is that the way we often treat this book here, this book of Revelation, is as if it uh, is given to us to legitimize our positions and to predict the, the specific details of the future, and I would just argue with you, I really don't think that's the case at all. I think this book, I think, I think it's why it's so intimidating to us. I think it's why we get it wrong so often. I think it's why pastors don't want to preach on it, uh, and we're so fearful of it, uh, and, and it's because we, we read it wrongly. Rather, I think what the purpose of this text particularly, and, and given everything that's happened in our, in our country in the last couple of weeks, the opportunity before us, and the reason why I wanted to come to this text this morning is, uh, this text comes behind all of the events of human history. All the events, including the events of the past couple of weeks in the United States of America. All of the events of, of human history with comfort and explanation. So I really think it's better to look from the back end of things and try to create the right perspective than to go before them and try to create the right conditions to get the outcomes that we want. Because sometimes when we do that, we don't know it, but we're fighting against the very things that God has determined to do. But the posture of faith would be, Lord, thy will be done. And then on the back side of things, Christianity has some really neat things to say to people. And I think that's what you see in this text here this morning. So if you would come with me to this intimidating, actually the beginning part of Revelation is not nearly as intimidating uh, as, it, as it gets as you move along. But uh, we come to this, this, these chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, and so here's what I want to do. Uh, let's, let's talk just for a minute about, about the book. Uh, William Hendrickson has written a commentary on Revelation that really changed and shaped my whole understanding of the book. And it's the one commentary that I, that I recommend to people when they ask me. And in the introduction, 
in a discussion, commentaries usually start with a discussion about the theme of the book. This is really what the book's about. This is what John's trying to do as he, as he writes this and so forth. In that introduction, he says this. He makes this statement. He says, Revelation is meant to show us that things are not what they seem. That that's the purpose. And it's the purpose of these chapters, to show us that things are not what they seem. And that's why I think we need to take these few weeks to study this book. And that's the message. It's the message for us this morning, in light of everything that's been happening in our world over the last few days. Things are not what they seem. Now, this book was written to Christians suffering under harsh imperial rule, literally. This is not a euphemism. Literally, they were being hunted down and killed. The Roman Emperor Nero was using the bodies of Christians as torches in the public squares of the Roman Empire. Putting tar on people's bodies and lighting them on fire. And John, the apostle who has been exiled to the island of Patmos because of his faith and his role in the spread of the faith, was given this vision that is meant to communicate that although the churches were suffering such intense persecution, things are not what they seem. You see? Revelation is not a detailed chronology of future events. There are people who interpret the book that way. I'm going to make the argument that, that, that we need to be really careful with that because Revelation talks about the future. It talks about the future, but only because what you believe about the future determines the kind of energy and courage that you live with in the present. The word from which we get the word of the book is the Greek word apocalypse or apocalypto, which the word literally refers to a disclosure. It it means the lifting of a veil, and and that's what Revelation is. Look how John describes it in verse 1 of chapter 4. He said, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. So Revelation, this book, opens the door of heaven so we can peek inside and see things as they really are. Instead of looking around at our world and missing and seeing and not, not knowing that things are not what they seem. So you can imagine how important this would be for the people John is writing to, and it's just as important for us. These are tumultuous times. And I've noticed two primary responses to the election. I'm going to speak about this you know, a little bit as we go throughout. Two primary responses to the election two weeks ago. Uh, I would characterize it to you this way. In in my view, people are either bracing or they're embracing. They're bracing because they're scared or confused. And it's not our place to pass judgment on, uh, you know, concerning the validity of those fears. But others are embracing because, you know, it feels like we, we won, we did it, or whatever the case might be. And so if you're shaking either with fear or with anger because of the ascending political powers, if Wednesday, two weeks ago, felt like your world was falling apart, if you woke up depressed and so forth, then the message of Revelation, and especially Revelation 4 and 5, is for you. You need to be reminded things are not what they seem. But here's the thing. If if you're celebrating, if Wednesday, two weeks ago, felt like the sun finally broke through the clouds and your spirit... Uh, you lifted and everything finally made sense, then you need to be reminded of the way things really are. That wild swing of emotions on both sides is an indicator light on the dashboard of our lives that signals misplaced hope. So if you're bracing, if you're bracing because your world is falling apart, or if you're embracing because it feels like your world is finally be put, being put back together again, I just want to warn you, you're in danger of losing perspective. And that's really what these chapters are about. 
This is Revelation 4 and 5. This is not a picture of heaven. It's a description. Get the difference, okay? It's not just that we're giving a picture of heaven. This is a description of the entire universe from the perspective of heaven. It is a picture of things as they really are. And it may seem like the world is spinning out of control. It may seem like God has abandoned you. It may seem like you're all alone in the world, but things are not what they seem. Look what's going on. Look at what is going on in the world from the perspective of heaven. Start with ultimate reality. And when you do that, things that here seem so significant and powerful, you begin to realize are not. And things that don't seem very significant and powerful, you'll suddenly realize that they are. You get a whole new, you get a whole new perspective. And that's why John's writing. That's what he wants for these people. And it's what he and it's what I want for us as well. So what is it that we learn? Well, if you look here in these chapters, there are four things. I mean, three things, excuse me. It's just the three points of your outline. I want to just highlight these three things that you see. They're the three dominant uh, images uh, in this book, okay? Three dominant things. You see first, in chapter four, you see a throne. And the throne teaches us that God is king. But secondly, in chapter 5, it transitions from the throne, then there's there's a scroll. The scroll becomes the the most significant thing. And if the throne teaches us that God is king, then the scroll teaches us the kind of king that God is. And then lastly, you see not only a throne and a scroll, but everywhere, all throughout this book, particularly in these two chapters, there's a song. And the song is just showing us what our response to God being king should be. So, a throne, a scroll in a song, okay? So let's look at those three things together this morning really quickly as we walk through uh, this text. So first, the first thing you see here, you can't miss it, chapter 4, there is a throne. And the throne, Hendrickson says, is the very center of the universe. So the center of the universe in the Bible is not the sun, it's not the earth, it's the throne. Revelation 4 is all about the throne because life is all about the throne. Just look back at the verses uh, that I printed for you, Okay. Let's just read, can we read just beginning in, uh, in verse 1 there? Uh, excuse me, well, where do we want to start? Verse 2 of chapter 4, just read with me. And notice as we read how many times the word throne comes up. Uh, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the, what? Throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carmelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the Throne, we're 24, throne, and seated on the, okay, you, you start to see this? You start to see it now. Um, it, your English teacher, if this was a paper that you turned into her, she would make you rewrite the paper for using the same word too many times. Right? She would say, that's bad writing. Come up with some, you know, different word. Uh, but, what, but it's a clue, this is a good way to teach, you know, as we're reading. When you're reading the Bible, the Bible writers don't worry about that. Uh, this is actually a literary device that they often use. And when you come to a passage where there seems to be a word that you can't get away from, guess what that means? That's the point. And so John's point in this part of his revelation, what God is teaching him here, the main point is the throne. And the throne, of course, is the symbol for sovereignty. So here's the doctrine. Here's the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Uh, you know, this is what we have here. So a throne is where a king sits. So God is king. And that is the predominant metaphor by which the Bible makes himself, by, by which God makes himself known in the scriptures. Did you know that? He is first and foremost, more than anything else, he is our king. So in Genesis, in the creation account, uh, there's a garden, we're told, right? You remember this image? And God comes there and walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And that is, the scholars tell us, undoubtedly a reference to the royal palace gardens of the ancient Near Eastern kings. God's making himself known as a king. 
When God's people demanded Israel as a king, do you remember the story? God said to the prophet, they have rejected me from being their king. I mean, as Richard Pratt told us two weeks ago when he was here for our Gospel in the World seminar, even when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father in heaven, he means our royal father. He means, it's, he means our king. Now, it, you know, it was actually C.S. Lewis who said that most of us don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. Why? Because we all, we love our grandfathers, right? We want a grandfather in heaven, somebody will, who will look down at whatever we're doing and say, oh, isn't that cute? What, what does it matter as long as they're happy? I mean, you know why grandparents and grandchildren are so close, don't you? They're united by a common enemy. <laughs> right? I mean, I, one, of my, one of my dearest friends just became a grandparent. And she said, I'm not disciplining that child. That's the only rule. That's the rule of grandparenting, right? You're the parent. I've been, you know, grandparenting is where it's at. I can't wait for that. It's going to be fun. Because parents discipline their children. Grandparents have already done that. And it's hard. It's way more fun to spoil your kids. Because then they love you. So, grandparents. But here's the thing. God is not a grandparent who brings you a present every time he comes for a visit. He is our royal father. He's our king. And as a king... What the text teaches us is he has the right and the authority and the power to see his royal will done in earth as it is in heaven. Look at verse, it's not, it's not, I didn't print it for you, but in chapter 4, verse 11, as they begin to sing, here's the thing they sing, that, that you have created all things and by your will, they sing, they exist and were created. In other words, whatever happens on the earth, it is explained by the throne. It comes from the throne. Listen, the what, the when, the how, the how long, and even the why of every event in human history, big or small, is answered by the throne. God sits enthroned in heaven, and Daniel 4 says he does according to his will with the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 33 says, the Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And even the, song, even the Proverbs, Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. But here's the thing. We're not talking about this just in a theoretical sense, okay? Don't turn this into a doctrine. Don't make this an intellectual exercise. This is a deeply personal thing. What the Bible is teaching us here is that God is directly and personally involved in all the different parts of our lives, even the smallest details of our lives, uh, so much so that in the Bible, did you know this? In the Bible, flipping a coin is an acceptable way of discerning God's will. Because he's in charge of the flip of the coin. I mean, in your reading, in your reading of the scriptures, it's rare to meet with the phrase, it rains. How do, the, how do the writers of the Bible talk about rain? God sent the rain. God fills his hands with lightning, as Dale said, and commands it to hit its mark. He shuts the mouths of lions to spare Daniel's life. He commanded a fish to swallow Jonah in the midst of the storm that he himself sent. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. There are only providences. And here's the thing. It's deeply personal. Listen, it's deeply personal. That's why it's written here, because it's so comforting and deeply personal. Not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. He knows the number 
of hairs on every head in the room. And for some, that's a harder thing for him to do than for others. But he knows. I thought that would get a laugh, but it didn't. That was, that was like, oh, too personal. Too soon. Too soon. The Bible says your days are numbered. That every day ordained for you was written in the book of heaven before a single one of them came to be. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means? It means history. History is determined in the throne room of heaven, not in the Oval Office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It is. Salvation comes from heaven, not any earthly king or ruler. You can't read the newspapers, God help us, to figure out what's happening in the world because things are not as they seem. You have to peek through the door of heaven to see the throne, and from the vantage point of the throne, then look at your life. That's the doctrine. That's the teaching. And so to these people being hunted down and killed by imperial powers in their day, what great news, right? What great comfort. And for us too, because if you're bracing, if you're bracing after the election, the throne, this view of the throne, the sight of the throne here should give you courage because things are not as they seem. There's a new set of circumstances, sure, but God is still on his throne. You hear me? And so the panic and the pain that people are experiencing is because... Is because things feel so out of control. The election made them feel like things are out of control, which of course means that a different outcome would have made them feel okay. But that's idolatry. That's looking to earthly political parties for comfort. That's trusting in princes, in men who cannot save, according to Psalm 146. So your life may be out of your control. Listen, do you hear me? Your life may be out of your control, but guess what? Just because it's out of your control doesn't mean it's out of control. There's a difference. But if you're embracing the changes the elections are sure to bring, then this should humble you. It should keep you, should keep you from hoping in government that cannot save. God did just not just now take his seat on his throne. He's been there all along. I hate to break it to you. Guess what? Even over the past eight years, it's really... Really, the circumstances are a little different, but reality is no different today than it was two weeks ago. And that, that fact, that truth should be the cause of our rejoicing and not a shift in power towards our political affiliation because if our joy comes from that, guess what? That's idolatry. And so whatever circumstances you find yourselves in, the teaching is they come from God. They come from the throne. We are in God's hands. Amen? We are in God's hands, and they are pierced hands. Amen? And the Bible says that nothing and no one can snatch us out of his hands. In other words, no one can thwart his purposes in the world. No one can stop him from doing what he is determined to do for you. And so if you're going through a good time, guess what? You're in God's hands. If you're going through a bad time, you're still in God's hands. If your part party is in or if they are out, you're in God's hands. Healthy or sick, you're in God's hands. Rich or poor, you're in God's hands. The throne. Secondly, we see not only a throne, but we see also as we go to chapter 5, what happens is the dominant metaphor changes from a throne to a scroll. And with the scroll, we learn what kind of king this God is. So if God is the king and if our lives are in his hands, it's important that we know what kind of hands our lives are in. And so the scroll is here the dominant 
the dominant image, and the scroll is a symbol of God's decree. It's an executive order. Uh, the ancient kings would write out their orders on a scroll and then put their seal, excuse me, on them to authenticate uh, those orders and also for security and for privacy. And then the scroll would be opened uh, and, the king, and the king's orders would be executed by whoever the king had chosen and who, he, whoever he had entrusted with his plans. That's the, that's the picture here with what's happening in Revelation chapter 5. Now, what we see is that this sets up a crisis uh, in heaven in Re- Revelation 5. God has a plan. But who will he trust to carry out this plan? Who deserves to be given all authority in heaven and earth to carry out God's plan of redemption and restoration? Who? Who will it be? And a search is made. And here's the thing. There was no one in heaven or on earth found worthy to break the seal and open the scroll, verse 3 of chapter 5. And look at what John's response is in verse 4. He begins to weep. Now, there's a really important lesson for us here. Uh, And it's this, that this is a delegitimation a delegitimization, excuse me, that's a big word, a delegitimization of all earthly political rulers and authorities, of every human king who has ever claimed divine authorization for his rule. This is a delegitimization of every pharaoh or pagan cult leader, every self-proclaimed messiah, every political party to be, that claims to be the one on God's side and de- demonizes the opposite. A search has been made. And none were found to be worthy. And what we learn is that God's throne delegitimizes every other throne. And we should participate and support. Because it's what it means to be good citizens of our country. But in our support, we should also be subverting. Because here's the truth. And I think John Piper said this, that America with her brief history and all of her presidents is going to be a footnote in the history of the world one day, and the kingdom of Jesus will go on unshakable forever. And that's what we believe. And so it's interesting that the response here in the text to every rule besides the rule of Jesus is to weep, not to exult, not to rejoice, because every other rule besides the rule of Jesus is corrupt and brings oppression and does not bring the kingdom of God. There's only one who is found worthy to bring God's kingdom, and it is not any political party or ruler. And John, as he sits there weeping because no one is found worthy, all of a sudden comes the good news. One of the elders came with this news. Verse 5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll. And this is all Old Testament language, as most of Revelation is, by the way, referring to Israel's king, the son of David, the Messiah, that the whole Old Testament had been looking forward to, who would take the throne in Jerusalem and rule in God's place over the whole world. But when John looked, here's the thing, he did not see a lion. Instead, verse 6, when he looked, he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. So this conquering king, this lion roaring against his foes as he overcomes, is pictured also as a lamb who has been slain and sacrificed for the sins of the world. And this is why he is worthy to open the scroll. And of course, Christians believe that the lion, who is also the lamb, is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king from the line of David, and the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But what is the lesson here? And here it is, I think. It teaches us first that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the only one worthy. He is the only one found in heaven and earth worthy of our praise and worthy of being given the authority and power to oversee all things upon the earth. He's the only one worthy because, first, of what he's done. These two images taken together speak to what he's done. He is conquered, but not through power, but through weakness. 
Not through victory, but in defeat. Not by gaining the throne, but through sacrifice and death and resurrection. He has accomplished the ultimate victory. He has conquered the ultimate foe. He has gained the ultimate throne. And this is why they sing. This is what they say. Verse 9, you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people for God and have made, made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And it should, it should it, th- those words should shake us emotionally the way it shook Susan as she was reading a few minutes ago. Because having been t- taken captive by sin... There was a price that had to be paid for God to get us back, and the price was the precious blood of his dear son. And that's exactly what we're told here he did. And the explanation for why this is the case comes from some of the details of the throne back in chapter 4. So if you want to look back there with me for just a minute, in Revelation 4, verse 4, we're told that the throne, around the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, which signifies God's holiness I mean, this is the way it always is in the Bible when God shows up. There's lightning and thunder and earthquake and fire. The mysterium tremendum that had people shaking in their boots. And the message is just this. God stands apart. We're separated from him because of our sin and rebellion. And when you try to get near him, it's all darkness and storm. Everything, everything screams. Don't come up. Don't come near. God is not to be trifled with. He is not safe. And if you think he is, you don't know him. But then we're also told... That even though there's flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, we're also given this other detail that around the throne there was a rainbow. And the rainbow, of course, if you know the Old Testament, is a symbol of mercy. Remember, remember the story of Noah? The rainbow was the promise that mercy would triumph over just judgment. That God would make a way for us to come near and know him despite our sin, despite his holiness, that he would make a way. And the rainbow is actually the clue to understanding how it is that God has done this because the rainbow, I'm going to put it this way, this isn't exactly scientific, it's supposed to be more poetic than scientific, so bear with me, okay? But the rainbow, the rainbow is the place where the storm and the sunshine meet. It's the symbol of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ endured the storm of God's wrath against the sin of man, and the sky went dark, and the earth shook, He shed his blood to buy us back from sin and death. But the cross is also where God's love for humanity is put on display. The cross is the place where the storm of God's wrath and the sunshine of his love meet. And that's the promise of the rainbow, that this king on the throne is great in power, but also great in love and mercy. And he could be that because of what Jesus did upon the cross. So not only is he worthy because of what he's done, but also you see here, ultimately he's worthy because of who he is. And these two images taken together speak of who he is. He is lion and lamb. Lion and lamb. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon entitled The Excellency of Christ. And the doctrine, his thesis, if you would, of that sermon is, uh, this is this is 300-year-old language. There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Do I need to say that again? There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ, and that is why he's worthy. But we're in Polk County, Florida, not in New York City, so let me explain. Let me explain. If you're a baseball fan, you've heard the terminology of five-tool player, uh, and it's a way of describing uh, a baseball player that really stands out from the rest because a five-tool player is a player who excels at hitting for average, hitting for power, running, throwing, and playing defense. They're strong in all five areas, which is really unusual. That's the point because typically... You can imagine if a player's fast, then he's probably what? Small, 
slight. And so if a player's fast, then he usually doesn't hit for power. Or if a player hits for power, he's a big gorilla of a guy, and so he typically doesn't hit for average. And they're so bulky, they usually aren't very fast and so forth. But, so you get the idea. But a five-tool player is a player that can do it all. And that is why they're so coveted by GMs and, and by fantasy uh, baseball players and revered by fans and so forth because they don't come around very often. Now, this is the point. It's a very crude analogy, so forgive me, but th this is the point Ever Edwards is making. That typically, if we have a strength, it always comes with a corresponding weakness, but not in Jesus. See, things come together in him. Things come together in him that you don't normally see in other people. So people who are, who are lion-like are not usually gentle and patient and kind. Can I get an amen? You with me? Right? People who are lamb-like are not usually fierce and courageous and so forth, but Jesus is both lion and lamb. He is a lion. He is the first and the last. He is the eternal king of the universe, the commander of the armies of heaven, and with all authority in heaven and earth, he roars across the earth to summon his people to himself, and they come trembling before him. But he is a lamb. He's soft. He's gentle. The prophet Isaiah says he does not quarrel. He doesn't raise his voice. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's tender, patient, gentle with people. He is both lion and lamb, and that's why he's worthy. Just think about it for a minute. What if he, what if he were just a lion? What if your life was in the hands of a lion? Well, that would be terrifying, wouldn't it? You get ripped to shreds. Have you seen? I mean, even you try to tame. You've, you've seen these videos of these lion tamers who eventually get ripped up by the lions that they're trying to tame because a lion can't be tamed. Okay, but you you answer this question: What if your life was in the hands of a lamb? Well, that wouldn't be much good either, would it? What can a lamb do? You're better off than a lamb is, but your life. Your life is in the hands of the one who is both lion and lamb. That's who's running the universe. And here's what Edwards had to say. Just a little quote from him in that sermon. It's so beautiful. He said, you need not be afraid. And if you're here, let me just, if you're here and you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, listen to these words. You need not be afraid to go to Christ for fear that he is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here is an inexhaustible treasure. If Christ accepts of you... You need not fear, but that you will be safe, for he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear that you shall be accepted, for he is like a lamb to all who come near to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. You need not hesitate one moment. He's saying, put your life in his hands. It's a good place to be. Put your life in his hands. Emotionally put your life in his hands. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. Though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. Can you imagine a better king? Can you imagine better hands for your life to be in? Can you imagine a better savior? Can you imagine a better friend? That's why he's worthy. That's why he's worthy. And that's why the last thing, when you see this throne, and when you see the scroll, the third thing that happens in, in heaven very quickly is there's a song. All of heaven sings. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. They are singing in heaven. 
because they're seeing things as they really are. They, they see God as he really is, and they, they, they're staring down ultimate reality. And if you could see what they see, it would put a song in, in our hearts too, a song that nothing on earth could stop. And that, that's the truth. That's why I, I, I'm, try, I'm really not trying to pick, and I really want us to think well about our emotional response to the past couple of weeks because the truth is that Christians should always be singing. We should have been singing on Tuesday morning before the elections began and all through the night, Tuesday night and into the morning on Wednesday and all through that day too, no matter what the results are because our hope, our joy, our peace has nothing to do with what's happening in this world. It's a heavenly song. And heaven is crying out worthy, verse 9, worthy. And that word means weight, significance, value. And the most important thing, and it begs the question for us as we try to apply this to our lives, what is most important to you? Let me ask it this way of you. What affects you most? Are you more affected by the happenings on earth or the throne in heaven? Are you more affected by the love of a friend or spouse or a parent or the love of your king? Do you feel more secure with people like you in power than you do knowing that God is on his throne? If so, it is an indication that you have a worship problem, that some earthly thing has become your song. And you're living in unreality. We are meant instead to sing along with heaven. Jesus, you are better than any earthly king. Your kingdom is better than any earthly kingdom. Your love is better than any other love. And so the response to the vision of heaven that we are given here is to sing, I've looked upon you, the psalmist says, I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So you know that you're living with the right perspective when you go through life singing. When you're going through your life singing, as the circumstances begin to change, this is what, see, this is what should happen to us. Now I'm confessing it doesn't, it doesn't happen to me. It didn't happen to me Tuesday, you know, two weeks ago like this. But what should happen to us, or at least what the promise of this text is, and the promise of the scriptures, I think, is that as we go through life singing, and even as the circumstances begin to change, and if they start to change in the wrong direction, when they start to change in the wrong direction, that's the moment you hit the chorus and your voice gets a little bit louder. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Are you bursting with a song like that? If not, if not, I can tell you why. It's because you've been looking around too much. And it's easy to do that in an election year. It's easy to forget that things are not as they seem. So here's what the text says. Look up. Look up. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold. In other words, that word is shake yourself awake and pay attention. Behold a door standing in heaven. And what do we see in heaven? A throne. And and, and what about the throne? There's the line of the tribe of Judah that has conquered. He is the lamb who is slain, but is standing, it says, in resurrection power, ruling over all things for the sake of his people. Listen, that is is the thing, that is the way things really are. Do you believe? Do you see? Is your heart captivated by that, despite what's happening in your life? Do you see? Do you believe? If so, then open up your heart. Open up your mouth. And join the song. Let's pray. So, Father, now... Uh, as we, we have context for what we're about to do now, Lord. Now as we sing, we've been doing a lot of singing this morning. Uh, and, and, and it's fitting because uh, it's what we see those in heaven doing. 
Uh, it's what those who are in touch with reality do, and we go, through, we go through life singing. So even as we sing these songs, remind us of what we're really doing here. Remind us of what's really happening in this, in this room. This is, we're not just a bunch of uh, people who have come to a church because it's the place we go every Sunday. Uh, we, we are in these moments entering into the worship service that is happening around the throne in heaven. We are joining our voices to the voices of the heavenly choir, the angels and the living creatures and, and the living things that are surrounding your throne. We, we are adding our voice to their voices as we proclaim your worthiness. We are, we are, this is repentance as we sing because we are turning our hearts away from the earthly things that would grab a hold of us and we are turning our hearts back to ultimate reality, to the truth, to things as they really are. We're correcting. This is a self-correction as we sing now. And so would you come and would you give us voices? Would you, um, would you give us a thousand tongues to sing your praise, as the old hymn says, uh, that you might be glorified in us as we do so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When that song becomes the song of your heart, then no matter what happens, you know, particularly with things like we've been facing as a nation in the last couple of weeks, no matter what happens, you won't live in fear. But you also won't be gullible enough to attach your heart's hope and dreams and joy to some earthly reality that can be taken away. Uh, what matters most, the truth that resonates in your heart that produces that song is this great God, the one who's seated on the throne, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God who is worthy to open the scroll. This God looks at you, not only great in power, but great in his love and in his heart for you. And that's the promise of this benediction. That God who is enthroned in heaven now looks at you to pronounce these good words over your life. So receive these words and go. Um, go trusting him in your heart uh, by faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forever, man. Amen. Go in his peace.